from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Soveda Ma'ani on November 19, 2018. I previously interviewed Soveda back in 2010 about her book Collective Security Within Reach. Since then, Soveda has published two more books. In 2015, she published Building a World Federation, The Key to Resolving Our Global Crisis, and her second book, that was recently published is Bridge to Global Governance, Tackling Climate Change, Energy Distribution, and Nuclear Proliferation. We talk about both books in the interview. She's also founder of the Center for Peace and Global Governance. I started the interview by asking Soveda what motivated her to write Building a World Federation, a key to resolving our global crises. You know, in 2008, I'd written my first book and what turned out to be a series on global governance. It was called Collective Security Within Reach. And at the time, I I had a thesis that basically any of our major global challenges could be resolved if we were only able as a global community to identify a set of foundational principles or what people now call global ethics to achieve consensus around them as leaders of nations, and then to start applying them methodically to solving the global challenge. Fast forward, we got to 2015, so seven years later, it became clear to me in the aftermath of a number of things that had occurred in the intervening years, including the global financial crisis, the war in Syria, the civil war, the refugee problem that ensued as a result of that, the nuclear proliferation problems that we were continuing to have with North Korea and Iran, climate change, which was becoming an ever greater problem, the Ebola crisis and so on, and the territorial aggression in Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea that we were standing at a fork in the road and that we desperately needed to move as quickly as possible beyond just identifying a set of principles and applying them methodically. We actually needed to build an, a global institutional structure, a form of federal world government that would allow us to solve these global challenges and that would be based on the foundational principles that I discussed in the first book, and indeed would have those principles woven into the very structures of the institutions, including their composition, their voting structures, the processes by which they functioned. So it was because of that that I decided it was time to write the second book to say, okay, identifying the set of principles is the first step. We now need to move beyond that and consider the second step, which is actually building a set of global institutions. And then, of course, unpacking what those institutions needed to be and why, what their role was, and then demonstrating, proving in the book that each of the global challenges we'd been facing in the seven years between 2008 and 2015 
could and would be completely solvable by taking this step. So that was what motivated me. And in the synopsis of the book, there's a statement here that's intriguing. It says, the book analyzes how humanity can take the next step towards mm-hmm. maturity by establishing collective decision-making institutions that can evolve mm-hmm. into a world federation of nation-states, which is what you were just describing. So what would those next steps be? Well, the first next step is, of course, acknowledging that our systems hitherto have failed because until we fully acknowledge that, we won't be willing to take any next steps. The step thereafter is to identify what needs to happen. And again, the way I've, I've described it in the books, it's sort of like saying, okay, we have a building project. We've decided that in order to survive, we need to build this building that will satisfy a certain number of needs. What do we need? We need a blueprint of what the building's going to look like and what it's going to be composed of, you know, how many stories, how it's going to flow, how it's going to function, how does the air conditioning work, how windows, et cetera, et cetera. We also need tools and materials. And then we need to have experts that we call on who have done this before uh, to tell us, well, when you're embarking on such a project, here are the pitfalls, here are the things you want to do that best practices show have worked well in the past. And then I break it down and I say, okay, the next steps, therefore, are first of all, identifying exactly what these collective decision-making institutions should comprise of. Again, it's based on a very profound understanding that in a world that is so interconnected and interdependent as ours has become, whether we like it or not, it it is our reality in such a world in which the nature of most of our problems are global, the only way to solve them is by creating collective institutions for managing common global problems. So that mindset and understanding, as I say, lies at the foundation. Then the next step is saying, okay, what are these institutions? And I go through in the book and I describe there are basically four main institutions. There's a world, a global legislature or a global parliament, if you like, that is to have the authority to pass certain binding laws in areas, in a narrow sphere of areas that have to do with common interests, things like climate change. No one country can solve the climate change problem alone. And so we all need to cooperate and find a mechanism through which we can consult as a global community and come up with global decision making, that will be binding. So it needs to be in the form of binding laws, something that we lack right now. This world parliament would also need to have the sole authority to claim war or to use force. Nation states need to cede that right to such a global parliament. The parliament would need to have the right to impose taxation at an international federal level in order to create funds that could be used, for example, to do research into new sources of renewable energy to replace the fossil fuels so that we don't exacerbate climate change. 
we would need a source of bailout funds to help nations like we saw in the European Union, you know, nations who might suffer from problems, sovereign debt crises like the Greeks have suffered that would be able to bail them out, but in which everybody would have a stake and everybody would be paying in over time so that wealthy nations didn't feel like they were constantly bailing out poor nations. We would have a source of funds to create an international standing police force in order to maintain peace and security. The World Parliament would also need to be granted the sole authority over all the natural resources that everybody in the world needs in order to thrive, such as energy resources. So think about oil and gas, although if we're going to stop burning them, we have to substitute them with other sources. But we have to get ourselves in a position where all nations have equitable access to meet their energy needs. So that's what the world parliament would essentially do. That would be its role. Then we would need a world executive that would have the authority to enforce these international laws. Otherwise, they're useless and to thereby maintain the credibility of the world parliament. And it would have at its beck and call the international standing force, which again would be truly representative of all nations, would operate solely under the direction of the world parliament and world executive, would operate in accordance with predetermined rules that are agreed upon by all nations so that we're not doing this on a policy basis, but on a legal basis and are not making things up as we go along, which generally leads to an unfair system where some nations are called to account for their actions where others are not, even though they engage in the same behavior. And then finally, we need to have a world court that has attributes that the current world court does not have, namely the ability to have compulsory jurisdiction. In other words, nation states would be forced to take their conflicts and disagreements to the world court. They would not have the option of opting out, which they currently do under the current system. And the court would also be able to issue judgments that were binding and enforceable, which under the current system, again, they are not, which puts us in this pretty ridiculous situation in which we wouldn't imagine the possibility of having within our nation states a system where if a murderer were to be accused of murder, that A, they would be given the option to come to court or not, which you can do under the international system if you say commit genocide or commit some other egregious violation of international law. And secondly, if the murderer were to show up, we certainly once a judgment had been passed and sentence handed down, we couldn't envision a system in which we would just hand the keys of the prison to the the defendant and say, okay, please walk yourself over to the prison and lock yourself in and stay there for X number of years. But again, that is the system we have at the international level. We somehow assume that the honor system should work well. And the question is, why would we think that a nation that has engaged in egregious actions like genocide or 
creating a, a secret nuclear program in which they plan to use nuclear weapons to take out other nations. Why such a nation would be bound by any kind of honor system to then say, okay, I hear the judgment of the court and I will faithfully abide by it on a voluntary basis. So this is the first step that needs to be taken is really to understand what the institutions are and to start taking steps towards creating those institutions. So I'm speaking with Soveda Ma'ani, author of Building a World Federation, The Key to Resolving Our Global Crises. Now, Soveda, you had said that the very first step was to acknowledge that the current system of national sovereignty trying to solve international problems for these nations to realize that it's not working. And from a Baha'i perspective, our faith tells us that this is the direction in which humanity is destined to go. But for someone who watches Fox News or CNN (laughs) or reads Time magazine, they can't possibly see nations acknowledging that the way they're operating isn't working in order to make this next step. So, So what is it going to take Mm-hmm. for nations to actually realize that they're in a dysfunctional mode and that they need to raise it up a level to a United States of the world? Mm-hmm. Well, look, we have two options. So, so the first thing that none of us must ever forget is that we have been granted an amazing gift of free will choice, the exercise of volition. We have it both in our individual lives and in our collective lives. So we have two choices, essentially. We will get there either through a lot more suffering. And when I say that, we have to stop and remember that a good chunk of people across this planet are already suffering immensely. We are quite blessed here at definitely North America and and, and in the Western world still not to be suffering in the ways that many people in many parts of the world are. Imagine, I always imagine living in Syria where 50% of the population has been displaced and are either refugees somewhere outside their country or displaced within their country and don't have access very often to food, to water. They're living in the midst of rubble, heaps of rubble. They can't walk down the street without looking to see if somebody is going to fire shot at them from the rooftops or drop a, a barrel bomb uh, with, with chlorine or some other chemical weapon on them. I mean, the, the, the forms of suffering that people are going through, whether we look at Asia, whether we look at Africa, whether we look at Latin America. I mean, think about living in Venezuela, where you see these amazing people, middle class. They're clad in beautiful clothes, wearing jewelry, living in gorgeous apartments, and yet they don't have access to the basics. They don't have access to food. They don't have access to medicine, and that their state is failing. This is happening in so many parts of the world. And if we continue on this trajectory, this suffering is going to bring us to our knees and is going to force us into a position, whether we like it or not, of saying, hey, you know, nothing can be worse than this. We want to try something different. 
In fact, interestingly, the famous 20th century historian Arnold Toynbee spoke about this in the 1970s, something that I find fascinating. He said, we seem to have an amazing allergic reaction to the idea of world government because we're clinging to national sovereignty. He said, the good news about this is that this is just a bad habit we have. And the good news about bad habits is that they're always capable of modification and change. However, he says, I predict that humanity will not be willing to modify this habit unless we're faced with an existential threat, which he thought would be come as a result of the atomic age, the nuclear bomb. He said, when that happens, I predict that humanity will turn on a dime. And although it'll be complaining and we'll do this kicking and screaming, we will be willing to create some form of limited world government that will ensure that we can take certain collective decisions and enforce those decisions in certain narrow spheres. Now, I think we are getting very close to that point because we now face at least two existential threats that the thinkers and politicians of our day are aware of, at least most of them, and are really starting to think about. One is climate change. It's the truck that's barreling down the hill at us without brakes. And we have to learn to cooperate together in order to solve it. It's either that or destruction on an unprecedented level. That's one. And the second is the threat of a nuclear holocaust, which has again reared its ugly head and is now threatening us again. So that is one way to get at it. The other option we have is to, for us, and this is why I do the work I do through my organization, the Center for Peace and Global Governance, one of the things we can do is set about raising each other's consciousness about an alternative method of getting ourselves out of this mess. And one of the principles I think that if we truly understood which is not hard to grasp if we were able to have the kind of dialogue that you and I are having today. And that principle is that in a world that is so interconnected and interdependent, the advantage of the part, so the advantage of one nation can only be guaranteed by guaranteeing the advantage of the whole. In other words, the advantage of the human race. This is a truly fundamental principle that is easily understandable once we start offering a whole host of examples. I'll just give you one here to illustrate the point. When the Fukushima disaster occurred in Japan in 2011, those of us living in the West thought, well, that's their problem. You know, it's what a shame, but uh, they're the ones who are going to have to deal with the radioactive fallout. Little did we know that a year later, people in both on the west coast of Canada and North America, scientists would be worrying that the cesium that had been thrown into the waters of the Pacific Ocean had wended its way (laughs) over to the west coast of Canada and North America, and that those who were bathing in those waters, those carefree surfers out in California, needed to be concerned about their health because of the radioactivity in the water. So this is a very small, simple example of how interconnected we are. The Ebola crisis is another example. 
it, it had reared its head for a very long time in Africa, usually in East Africa, would kill a few hundred people and then die out. Why? Because people stayed in their villages. Well, that isn't the case anymore. When the latest breakout, they discovered that the virus had started to travel, travel not only outside the villages into the big cities, but to hop onto the planes along with people who traveled and bringing the virus over to other countries in the Western world and in China. And so all of a sudden the international community sat up and said, whoa, wait a minute, we need to nip this in the bud because our own well-being is at stake here. And sure enough, because they collaborated and worked together, they were able to get rid of that Ebola crisis without it turning into a pandemic that could have potentially killed millions of people around the world. So when people say to me, yeah, but look at what's going on. Yeah, people are really ignorant about the realities that we face. And unfortunately, the media has a lot to answer for because people are not being told the truth of how interconnected we are and how our actions in one part of the world affect all of us, that we've become a single organism that is now prone to systemic risks. And if we are to deal with those systemic risks, we need to administer systemic remedies that affect the entire body. But in my work with audiences and people both in small groups and large groups, I can see the shift that can occur in their thinking if we take the time to sit down and unpack all of this. And I do believe there is hope because the alternative is not pretty and leads to nothing but paralysis and despair, which we can ill afford at the moment. So I'm speaking with Silveda Ma'ani, author of Building a World Federation, The Key to Resolving Our Global Crises. Silveda, do you have an excerpt you'd like to read for us? Oh, sure. I'd love to do that. This excerpt comes towards the end of the book, and it talks about a, a phenomenon that I started to notice in 2015 and to talk about, and that was the phenomenon of fragmentation. So here goes. In the context of a world in which fragmentation appears to be the current trend, the critical question to ask is, will a federated world government with centralized institutions be even further out of touch with the grassroots, act unfairly or oppressively, and thereby elicit further moves towards separation and fragmentation? Or can we craft a system of federal government that allows localities and regions to have a certain amount of autonomy and freedom intending to their legitimate local needs while also working collectively to solve problems of a global nature that affect them all and create an increasingly unified world community? It is critical that we answer this question for we face a real danger that in our rush towards fragmentation as a perceived panacea for solving all difficulties, we will set off a chain reaction of increasing fragmentation into smaller and smaller parts without a well-designed link between them. One can see that if left unchecked, this process can easily degenerate into an avalanche of greater and greater fragmentation and balkanization, generated and fed by fear, resulting only in conflict and despair. 
in a world in which interdependence is an inescapable reality and in which increasing global crises demand global solutions based on collective actions, the path towards fragmentation is the path to perdition rather than salvation. So I'm speaking with Silveda Ma'ani, author of Building a World Federation, The Key to Resolving Our Global Crisis, and she just read an excerpt from her book. So let's transition to your other work, which is called Bridge to Global Governance, Tackling Climate Change, Energy Distribution, and Nuclear Proliferation. Now that you have written the book called Building a World Federation, The Key to Resolving Our Global Crisis, Mm -hmm. what motivated you to write this second book, which seems to be related? So what motivated you to write this book? So what motivated me was the recognition that people may feel that the leap from where we are to building a world government in one fell swoop would be too much of a leap and that they would therefore fail to take it because they would view it somehow as being idealistic or far-fetched. So my goal was to provide a roadmap and say, well, let's start with baby steps we can start by identifying a narrow sphere of international endeavor. And I chose this trifecta of global challenges because two of them, as I mentioned before, when we were talking about the previous book, Building a World Federation, two of them are the problems that have put us in a mode of survival where they threaten existentially our very existence. Those are climate change, and nuclear proliferation and the threat of nuclear holocaust. So my goal was to say, let's take these two problems plus a third, which is how we use energy, because that really plays into both nuclear proliferation and into the climate change problem. Let's take these three problems and let's find a mechanism, an institutional structure that we can use to solve these three problems. If we can do that, and demonstrate to the skeptics that we have solved three of the most intractable challenges of our time. And in doing so, we have created the first step in a workable system of global governance. That step would build confidence and inspire trust in this methodology. And we would then continue to build it out slowly, incrementally, and methodically and have it encompass greater and greater spheres of endeavor. And in doing so, I wanted to create hope and confidence. That was the main goal. That's the reason I wrote this book. And I was excited because I wanted to also prove that this was not a pie-in-the-sky idea because I wanted to use a historical model that had actually used this methodology during the 20th century in the aftermath of the Second World War in order to resolve some of the seemingly intractable challenges within Europe after the Second World War. By using that historical model, I wanted to prove again to the skeptics that such a methodology was not only possible, 
of actualization, but that it would prove successful because it had proved so in the middle of the 20th century. And it's a model very few people know about or remember. We, we tend to forget our history and we also tend to focus on the negative aspects of our history. So I wanted to use this very positive aspect of world history, which by the way, ultimately led to peace in Europe. The peace that Europe has experienced over the last 70 years has been as a result of this historical model, which is the European coal and steel community. And it also led to each of the nations who participated in this historical model benefiting a lot more by acting in collaboration with each other than they would have benefited if, if they'd each tried to go it alone. So that's the reason that I wrote this book. So I'm speaking with Silveda Ma'ani, author of the book, Bridge to Global Governance, Tackling Climate Change, Energy Distribution, and Nuclear Proliferation. And you referred to this model after World War II. And it made me think, and you can revisit the model as part of answering this question, that after World War II, there seemed to be this momentum to have world cooperation with the establishment of the United Nations. But then to the person that sees that the world is almost going in the opposite direction, how can they envision the powers that be actually coming together as they did with the model that you describe in the book after World War II. And maybe you could just revisit again what that model was. So the model that we're talking about is the European coal and steel community that was brought into being in the aftermath of the Second World War. It was brought into being actually in 1952. And it involved, for those who don't know, the pooling of coal and steel, which were the functional equivalent of our oil and gas today. So uh, the critical sources of economic growth and development, it involved pooling all those resources from several nations and putting them in the hands of a supranational authority, not an intergovernmental authority, but a supranational authority. It was a very interesting, very new idea that was conceived of by Jean Monnet, who was the father of this idea and who was an amazing gentleman who, although a Frenchman, was not a nationalist in that he did not believe that he wanted the good of France at the expense of other nations, but rather he wanted the good of France as well as all the other nations in Europe. And that's how he was able to come up with this model and eventually six nations in Europe. Europe were convinced to join this amazing institution, which is the founding institution of what we know today as the European Union. And to answer your question, first of all, the path of progress is never linear. Okay, we tend to, as human beings, and we know this from our individual lives, we tend to take four steps forward and then we slide very painfully back three, three and a half steps. Ultimately, we gain a half a step over a long period of time and then we propel ourselves and there's another spurt in growth. Overall, when you look at the trajectory, you can see that we're developing, although it's not so evident when we're in these periods of downturn where it looks like we're losing all the gains we've made. That's the period I believe that we're going through right now. But I believe this period is critical because it is teaching us a lot of very deep lessons that we need to learn before we can make the next giant leap. 
the United Nations and before it, the League of Nations, were both very crucial, important steps on the path towards creating global governance of the kind that we, humanity, need at this stage in our collective evolution when we are so interdependent and interconnected. The fact that the UN system appears no longer to be able to address the greatest challenges of our time simply means that we now need to make a huge leap in either reforming it or in trying a different model that works. And indeed, when you look at what I proposed in the previous book with a a collective decision-making world parliament, you realize when you look at the UN that we don't have such a thing. We have a general assembly that does not have any authority to pass binding laws or regulations. And so with climate change, here we are stuck with the Paris Agreement in which every nation voluntarily commits to reducing emissions of fossil fuels, but we know how those voluntary arrangements go. One year we say, yes, we'll do it, and the next year we say, sorry, we're pulling out, or we can't, or something came up. That system has not worked well for us and is not going to continue to work. The UN also doesn't have a world executive that has powers of enforcement, which is one reason why the Security Council is hamstrung. It also does not have woven into it a set of global ethics that we can agree on, like the principle of the oneness of nations and peoples, which is why we have a Security Council with veto power, so that if 190 nations or 92 nations think that a certain course of action would be good for peace and security, if one of the veto-wielding powers in the Security Council thinks otherwise, they can nix it, which is crazy, really, when you think about it. We don't have a world court with binding jurisdiction. We covered that before. And we certainly don't have an international standing army to stop genocidal maniacs from destroying their own people or from using chemical weapons against them or from invading other countries or from building illegal nuclear weapons programs. So we are now at a different stage in our existence and new requirements are needed. And so what we've learned now is that we came quite a ways with the United Nations and the League of Nations, but those are definitely no longer sufficient and we need to move beyond them. The last thing I'd say is that what happened in the aftermath of the Second World War came as a result of a lot of suffering. And this was a topic we talked about earlier when we were talking about that first book, that we do have a choice. We can either wait until we suffer so much And that's what happened after the Second World War. That's why after that war, people like Winston Churchill were calling for United States of Europe and in some cases, the United States of the world. But they quickly recognized that the people of Europe were not even ready to take the leap towards the United States of Europe, let alone have the world take a leap towards the United States of the world. And that's why they came up with this system of the European coal and steel community. Jean Monnet said that he viewed this, his goal was to create trust 
that if the European coal and steel community worked, that these European nations would then want to add another link in what he called a chain of increasing integration until we got to the United States of Europe. And when you look at the history of the European Union, indeed, this is what has been happening. And we're now stuck at a point where we have failed to take the next step towards integration. And so we're starting to see what appears to be an unraveling. But I think that unraveling is just demonstrating to us that the only solution to all Europe's problems is to take that next leap towards deeper integration and create a United States of Europe. And I think that that's what our world is also learning more and with all the resurgent forces of nationalism we see, the xenophobia, the racism, the sexism. These are all, to me, evidences that we are retarded in our collective progress, that we've failed to take the next step towards deeper world integration, and that if we continue to fail in that regard, we're just going to suffer more and more and more until we wake up and realize, oh boy, we've been going the wrong direction. And we will, as Toynbee said, turn on a dime at that point and do what's necessary. That is my belief. So I'm speaking with Saveda Ma'ani, author of the book Bridge to Global Governance, Tackling Climate Change, Energy Distribution, and Nuclear Proliferation. So Saveda, do you have an excerpt from this book that you could read for us? Sure. Since we've already talked about one of the purposes of the book, I want to share with you another purpose, and I'll take this from the book. So another purpose of this book is to demonstrate the power of even a handful of individuals, particularly those in positions of leadership, motivated by only the best interests of humanity rather than self-interest, and exhibiting certain sterling qualities like freedom from prejudice to bring about organic and far-reaching changes in the structure of our global governance institutions that in turn foster peace, prosperity, and stability in our global society. In a world where the rule of strongmen seems to be once again on the rise, where leaders unabashedly stir up the ugliest and most divisive of human emotions like xenophobia, racism, and sexism to gain and maintain their grip on power, and where the forces of nationalism appear to be gaining ascendancy, resulting in the increasing fragmentation of human society, I believe it is essential that we remind ourselves of a better world, which could be ours if only we bring ourselves to demand leaders with qualities that inspire trust and engender unity. Lastly, but by no means of least importance, I aim to illustrate the power of consciously and deliberately weaving a set of universally agreed global ethics into the very structures of our global governance institutions. It is not sufficient for our leaders to possess ennobling qualities. In addition, the very composition, voting structures, and processes that govern our institutions must also embody principles of oneness, equity, and uncompromising focus on the collective good to inspire trust and confidence in the governed and guard against the corrosive forces of self-interest and corruption. So I'm speaking with Silveda Ma'ani author of Bridge to Global Governance, Tackling Climate Change, Energy Distribution, and Nuclear Proliferation, and she just read an excerpt from 
the book. Now, in our discussion about these two books, Saveda, you had referred to a Center for Peace and Global Governance. Is that right? That's correct, yes. So can you tell me about that center? Sure. The Center for Peace and Global Governance is a virtual think tank and online forum that pools and proposes principled solutions, and the emphasis here is on principled as opposed to expedient solutions, to pressing global problems. We do this through publications like the books we've been talking about, through podcasts, through lectures, through workshops, both online and in person, and through a bunch of webinars and online courses. We're also in the process of producing a number of what we hope will be weekly video blogs, essentially, that engender hope in people around the world that creating a global governance institution infrastructure is not only possible, but inevitable, and that we need to start working on it now. So, yeah, it's very exciting. Those who are interested are very welcome to visit our site at cpgg.org, or you can type in Center for Peace and Global Governance.org. And if you're interested in collaborating with us, we would love to hear from you. So, Saveda, thank you so much for sharing this important work and these important concepts for the really the saving of humanity and for your work with the Center for Peace and Global Governance. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Soveda Ma'ani, author of Building a World Federation, The Key to Resolving Our Global Crises, and Bridge to Global Governance, Tackling Climate Change, Energy Distribution, and Nuclear Proliferation. She is also founder of the Center for Peace and Global Governance. I'll post links to her work on the website, abahaiperspective.com, where you can also find this interview and other interviews. You can find this interview also on my YouTube channel, A Baha'i Perspective. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org, or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
is my life and my time And the feel of a hometown where I landed Slipping away on the empty handed So all I can call these things my own When I give them to you in the palm of my hand So say the wise and the sages I've got nothing but I'm working God's land I've got the wealth of the ages I wear the clothing of the common man Doing the work of the angels Time flies like fine grains of sand my life is a turn of the pages And I'll give it to you Cause I can't give away what isn't mine And all that I have is my life and my time And the feel of a hometown where I landed the Slipping away I'll be empty handed So all I can call these things mine to you Soon will our handful of days be gone And we shall pass empty-handed Into the hollow that is dark With those who speak no more It's only my life till it's ended And it's only what love demanded To give it to you like giving away what isn't mine Can I really claim my life or my time Or even the hometown where I landed The slipping away I'll be empty-handed So all I can call these things my own Gonna give them to you And if I can all these things my own that I give them to you Can I really call these things my own This is WXOJLP Northampton 103.3 FM Your Valley Free Radio Station streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.